Amen. <clears throat> Praise the Lord. That's good. That's good. All right. <clears throat> I want you to turn to two passages. Uh, John 1.1 1, 1 and Acts 17. <clears throat> John 1.1 1, 1 and Acts 17. And... Uh, while you're turning, I'm going to remind you of Genesis 1.1. <clears throat> In the beginning, God. Amen. In the beginning, God. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, we could even repeat the same was in the beginning with God. Now, Acts 17, if you will. Acts 17, go all the way down to verse 24. This is Paul as he has entered Athens and he's awaiting for his uh, fellow disciples and he's been looking around and they took him to Mars Hill and he begins to preach and in verse 24 he says, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, Neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live. Get that. For in him... We live and move and have our being. As certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver, stone, graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. And let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for the day. Lord, I pray that you would Lord, help and bless in the preaching tonight. We'll thank you for it, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So you may be seated. This is a... Um, I, I don't know what the length of this series will be. I'm, I'm guessing it'll be somewhat short. Uh, but I want to do a series on who is God? Who is God? And if, if you will, if you want to get... We could, we could call it the attributes of God. I, that might be, we might go beyond the attributes of God, but uh, I want to look at who is God. I think there is nothing better that a Christian could do than to study our God. And, and in this process, we may take a very clear look also at Jesus Christ. And tonight, I, I began, my, my thought was that, you know, if we're going to look at God, you ought to start in the beginning. And the beginning happens before the beginning. You know, I mean, God is. Um, we are reminded, of course, by Moses, uh, God's conversation with Moses that I am. 
that I am. He is God. He always was. And I, I took us to Genesis 1, you know, and John 1, because I'm thinking of the eternality of God and how that God is. And, and uh, I, I want to, before I, I guess before I get too far in here, I want to say that while I am going to attempt in some ways to define God, but by doing that, we run into problems. Okay? We run into problems when we def- try to, as humans, try to define God. A man by the name of, or a man, excuse me, a lady by the name of Evelyn Underhill said it this way, if God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. Is everybody with me? Is everybody in the room? Okay. God is infinite and we are finite. And so without a doubt, I am not going to make a claim that I can present to you all that God is because no man knows all that God is. Um, I do not know, obviously, all that God is. But there are a few things that we can ascertain about God from Scripture. And from those few gems, if you will, we are going to try to give, if you will, a picture of God. I, I think of it like this. Um, you know, think of if we were to talk to an astronomer. Not an astrologer, an astronomer, a person who studies the stars, okay? And, and if, we were to, if we were to sit in a lecture from an astronomer, and, and we might hear many things about the universe, and we, I mean, we would, we would he'd be pointing out stars, and he could talk about the moon, and, and in today's day and age, which I think, uh, to me, I think is really cool, he'd probably talk a lot about Mars, and and uh, for some of you that have been paying attention over the last several decades, we've been preparing to go to Mars for a very long time. I mean, the whole, some of you remember the biosphere projects? Does anybody, okay, that, that was all about going to Mars. That whole thing was about going to Mars. And uh, I think that's pretty cool. If we can get to Mars, if God lets us stay here, let us, hey, that'd be pretty cool. But when we sit and listen to an astronomer, he, and he talks about all those things, he ain't never been to any of those places. There's no one who has been to Mars. Now, we've got a few people who have been to the moon. The rest of us just talk about the moon, and we talk about the people that have been to the moon. And no one has been to Mars, but we talk like we understand Mars. And, but at the same time, you know, we look at the astronomer, and we could say, yeah, but he's never been to any of those places. At the very same moment, we would leave that lecture, perhaps in the evening, and walk out. And what would be the first response of most people who were intently listening to a lecture of that sort? Whether or not the astronomer has ever been there, he can capture our attention and help us look aloft and gain a new appreciation to maybe have a little bit of awe and wonder. So if you'll allow me, I feel like in many ways, we're trying to define God from a distance. But I, my hope is that after this series, perhaps when you leave the services, you might walk out the door and you might look up with maybe just more awe and wonder um, about God. Amen. That's, that is my hope. Maybe a new love in your heart. So tonight, I want to look at two facts. Again, I started off telling you, my thought was to start at the beginning, the eternality of God, the eternity of God, the God that God is eternal. And in the process of my study, and matter of fact, it's, it changed. I had to go back and re-walk my way in. I found out that we cannot look at the eternality of God without including 
another aspect of God, and it's, I'm going to introduce us to a new word uh, for some of you. Now, if you've been reading the, uh, the Baptist Times, you'll notice that there was a, a three-article uh, three series by Josh Merrill, and he, he kept, kept referencing this term, the aseity of God. Okay, the aseity. Okay, and we're going to, that's a new word, so let's everybody say it together. Ready? Aseity. Ready? One, two, three. Aseity. Okay? So by that, I mean this. God is sufficient to himself. He is independent of anything outside of himself. So we, just to say it, if I could say it extremely simple, God is self-sufficient. So the aseity of God means that God is self-sufficient. Now it's a little bigger than that, but that's the simple way to put it. He describes himself, again, remind, remember Moses at the burning bush. He's, he, he says, who, who, who am I supposed to tell these Jews that sent me from the burning bush? And God's response to him from the burning bush is, I am that I am. Not I was and I shall be. No, I am. I exist. That is exactly who God is. He is, he just is. Um, Robert Sargent said it this way. He is the first cause, himself uncaused. Kind of an interesting way to put it. He is the first cause, himself uncaused. Now, we have to go here, and I'll, I'll work you there. I'll work you there as as we go along. But we need to talk about this aseity first. So, look at again at our scripture here in Acts seventeen. Paul is quite clear in talking to the, the this group of pagans who have. Uh, the, the, they say that the whole area around Athens was filled with, with what we would call idolatry. But there were idols and images and representation of all sorts of gods. I'm sure, uh, quite possibly, especially in the Greek culture, there were, there were Greek versions, Roman versions, Egyptian versions of all these various gods. And matter of fact, by this time, if we were to walk with Paul down, down the, the lanes, we would probably recognize some of them because people still, we make movies about Zeus and, and, and Hercules and all these others. These are some of the people that Paul is dealing with, some of the gods, quote-unquote, he's dealing with. And he references in, in verse 23 that they've got this altar to the unknown god. And there's a great story behind that, and I don't have time to go there. But... And Paul begins to, begins to see all their idolatry because in their minds, all of these gods required their worship so that they could get something from the god in return. Is everybody with me? They, they, they had to give the god something so that the god could give them something. For, perhaps some of you might remember... Um, the, uh, the frozen, the completely frozen, uh, well-preserved young Indian girl, uh, I say Indian, native girl that they found way up on top of a mountain and they brought her down and they, they found out that she was, a, she was a sacrifice to a god. She was perfectly preserved and she had, she had, been, um, she had been killed by being struck in the head, but she was an offering to their God. Their God required a maiden from them so that they could receive from that God, who knows, perhaps, um, usually those things are around the idea of fertility, so that plants would grow and that babies would be born and all those kind of things. And, 
And, but that was required by their God. Their God needed that from them so that they could get what they needed. And Paul, looking around, says quite clearly in this chapter 17, he says in, uh, he says in verse 24, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything. The real God, he doesn't need all this. He doesn't need anything. This is God. God is not a God who needs man. I'm afraid that even in many times, and I, I perhaps even I, I would, part of me wants to go back over some of my own notes and look at some of my messages, because we sometimes, and I know I have heard men, appeal to the lost for salvation by trying to appeal to the longing in Jesus' eyes or, you know, or the longing in God's eyes that he was looking for a friend, you know, that, and, you know, he wants you to be his friend. Can I just tell you, that is just simply not true. It's simply not true. God needs nothing. He is quite sufficient within himself to provide everything he needs for himself. He has all, the, he has all that he needs. He has all the resources necessary to do what he to to be what he is and do what he does. He needs nothing else. Okay, we need food, sleep, exercise, etc. Our cars need gas, maintenance. Our plants need sun and air and water. Our earth needs sunlight and rotation. God needs nothing. God exists and needs nothing. This is in complete opposition to not just the, the about the pagan gods that Paul was preaching about, but most of the gods and the pagan gods of all time in history. Think of Elijah on on top of Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. And he says, you guys, see if you can get fire to come down from heaven. And what do the prophets of Baal feel like they need to do to get their God, Baal, to answer? Well, first, you know, they offer stuff, you know, and then they start hollering and shouting. And, of course, you know Elijah the whole time saying, maybe he's asleep. You know, you know, maybe he's off on a journey. And then they begin, the, the, these prophets literally at some point begin to cut themselves. Now, why are they doing that? Because they're mad? No, they believe that they need to offer God more. So it must be that I need to offer God my own pain, my own, um, you know, my own subservience, my own blood, so that he will answer. Maybe he needs more to answer. Think about the people that make those long, long journeys to, to Mecca or other places. And the whole time they're, they're walking, they're, they're flagellating themselves. They're beating themselves. Uh, sometimes they literally poke themselves through with, with long sticks. I mean, they're, they're, when they, by the time they actually arrive, they're, they're bloody and bleeding, and they believe that their God requires this of them so that he can give them what they need. Amen. Elijah, what did Elijah do? Elijah sets up the sacrifice, and he says, God, these people need to know your God. Woof! Go read it yourself. That's what he says, essentially. These people need to know that you're God. Boom. He doesn't say, God, I gave you all this. I just pray you'll answer me in response. No, no. These people here need to know that you're still God. Boom, he's God. 
In the pagans' mind, sacrifice was always necessary because the gods they serve needed it. They're fickle gods. As a matter of fact, if you study the Greek and Roman gods that they present, that's exactly what they are, very fickle. You've got to do just the right thing, so they'll give you what you need. And if you don't do just the right thing, you know, you've got to offer. If we don't offer this dance, then he won't give us rain. You know, um, uh, uh, what does God do with rain? The Bible says he rains on the just and the unjust. Kind of interesting. He has to have some form. We have to, it, this God, he needs us to, to build him in a form of wood or maybe gold or lots of gold so that we can offer our worship to him. And just go, go read Psalm 50 at some point and look at that whole idea, that, that continuation of the, the, the need of the pagans to have this, the pagan gods to have this offering. But our God needs nothing from us. Somebody say, well, he needs our worship. No, he does not. He does not need our worship. Now, follow me through. We're going to keep rolling with that. Our God needs nothing from us, and all the things that we might give to Him <laughs> are not to supply His need. As a matter of fact, the worship that we are to give to Him has nothing to do with His need, but our need. The songs that you sing in a congregation time are not about what God needs but about what you need. That's why I encourage people to get involved. Think, sing from your heart. I think it's, I can't remember who said it, but maybe it was Max Lucado. I don't think that's right. But no, it wasn't. I can't remember his name now. But he said, he said I would rather, I would rather have a heart but no words than words but no heart. You understand that? We do not serve God because He depends on us to serve Him. We serve God because we depend upon Him. Now, this, if you think about this, again, I mentioned worship, but in Romans 11.36, that's quite clear. Paul says, For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. That's aseity. To whom be glory forever. Amen. That his aseity, his self-sufficiency, and the somewhat provision is a reason for our worship. Now, now some might think this. So here they say, say, well, if God's so self-sufficient, so self-sufficient, it would seem to some that that would create a sense of like a barrier. You know, that, well, he doesn't need anything, so what's the purpose? You know, I mean, not what... Well, I want you to think about it through this, uh, this, and I'm trying to short circuit. You realize we can talk a lot more about this, and I encourage you to go study it for yourself. But John 3.16, I think, says it quite clearly. For God, so the world. For God loved the world. Now, there are those who think, especially human, when we think about it from a human standpoint, the philosopher Aristotle actually literally said it this way, that a God who loves is a God who needs. That's what he felt like. And there's, that is a very human way to look at it. Because typically, when we love, we need. Okay? He would say, a God who loves would therefore need to be loved in return. That, that's essentially the, the, 
the formation of Aristotle. A God who loves would therefore need to be loved in return. But that's false. We know that's false. Well, he's saying we don't need to love him in return. No, that's not what I said. But he does not need our love in return. Romans 5.8 says it quite clearly. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, we didn't love him. Christ died for us. God did not need our love in return to love us. He loved us even though we could not love him in return. And Jesus Christ was sent for those who would not. You realize that Jesus Christ, and I believe this wholeheartedly, uh, that Jesus Christ died for all mankind. I think that's exactly what the Bible teaches. In other words, he died and gave love even to those who at some point will reject his love to them. God does not need our love in return. We need his love to us and we need to love him in return. God loved those who did not love him. Think about that. For poor ornery people like you and like I. Don't tell me that's not true. You know it's true. Think about it. What a God. What a God who is self-sufficient but does not keep his sufficiency to himself. What a God who is completely, who does not need us, but instead decides he's going to love us. (laughs) He doesn't need us, but we're his creation, and he says, yeah, but they're going to need me. What a God. God loved those who did not love him. This is our God. Our Jehovah, who of his own, think about this, who of his own accord, he doesn't need the the covenants with us, but he made them. He does not need relationships with us, yet he seeks one. This is who, (laughs) of his own accord, he decides, I'm going to create something, and then I am going to enter into a relationship with my own creation, not because I need it, but because they need it. You know, you get, Jesus Christ was not sent because God was trying to get something for himself, as if he needed it. Jesus was born in a manger because we needed it. The whole story of Christmas is God's gracious love to man. It's God reaching outside of himself to a people who were needy, who could not return. I mean, think about it. Grace, grace doesn't, is worthless if God needs it. There's no, there, there's no grace. You understand that? Grace is pointless if God needs it. No, grace is because we need it. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace are you saved through faith. Are through faith. And listen, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Wow, not of works lest any man should boast. The whole thing is of God. I mean, I could go further. We could even say that everything that we even had to get back to God, we had to get from God in the first place. I... I have a voice given to me by God that I can give back to God. There's one man that said this. He said, prayers are the breath of God from man going back to God. They're the breath of God in man going back to God. John, let, let me put it this way. A man by the name of, name of John Frame, um, who writes for the Gospel Coalition, said it this way. Salvation presupposes God's aseity, for in salvation we are desperate. And God is all sufficient. <laughs> Praise God. Now, think about it. Praise God that the self-sufficient God would reach outside of himself down to us who are a needy people. Thank the Lord 
for the grace of God. Now, I did tell you that we could not get to eternality without talking about aseity, the self-sufficiency. Now, some of you have already connected some dots, obviously, because if God exists in eternity, he kind of has to be self-sufficient. You get that part. I mean, if, if he exists and there's nothing else but God, then he does have to be self-sufficient, and that kind of works as it is. But <clears throat> aseity is the state of God being self-sufficient. Eternality is where we begin to talk about... Now, follow me through. I'm, we're talking about... Well, anyways, we'll just keep going. Eternality is a way for man to talk about time. Okay? When we reference eternity, we are now referencing a way for man to talk about time. And if you will, to put it this way, um, eternality is how God works in time. How God's aseity works in time. Follow me through. In Genesis 1.1 and John 1.1, we discovered, of course, the amazing wonder that in the beginning, God came into being, right? In the beginning, God appeared. No, in the beginning was God. Now that beginning is not the beginning of God. That beginning is the beginning of time. The beginning of the earth, beginning of all things. That beginning literally is the beginning of time. So when time began, God already was. Already was. Amen. We could also keep going and further and we say when time ends, God will still be. But that's almost, it's almost unnecessary to say that, but God did not begin. He already was. The simple quick statement is to say that if God existed himself before time and thus before man, again, he had to be self-sufficient before time began. There is no reason to believe that the beginning of time changed his self-sufficiency. It, it, this, it continued. But when we say God, I know we're talking about some interesting things here, but when we say God is eternal, does that mean that God lives outside of time? and thus distant from us, because we are in time, are we not? So we say, if God's eternal and he's not inside of time, you know, he's not, he's not subject to time, does that mean he's outside of time? And, and, I mean, to kind of be really practical, we could say, then, does God experience the passage of time now that time exists? I, I think that's a fair question. Mr. Frame again helps us here with this idea that God's relation to time is different than ours. It's different than ours. We, as people, often run out of time. Does anybody ever have that happen? I, I kind of had that today. I ended up, you know, thought I, was, thought I was heading in the right direction on my study and found out I had to suddenly add in a whole new direction and choir practice became secondary because I'm pastor first, choir member second. Run out of time. We also get bored because time passes too slowly. Does anybody remember your very first time? Well, excuse me. Those of you who are hunters, does anybody remember the very first time somebody took you hunting and it was one of those where you sat? You're like... Or whatever it is that you do. Whatever it is where you got bored because school, time's not passing fast enough. Would the clock hurry up? We're, we, are sub, we have all these weird relationships with time. That never happens to God. God always has enough time to accomplish his purpose. 
and he never has too much time so that he gets bored. <laughs> you know what happens when we get bored? We start, doing, we start getting in trouble, essentially. God never has that. He doesn't, he doesn't get bored and then begin to play with men and their emotions like many of the pagan gods that they talk about. We must in some way then figure out how all this works together. Okay? And I know, I know I'm kind of walking outside of Scripture and trying to pull in some verses again. I'm the astronomer from here trying to pick out a few stars and describe the universe. Okay? God is and lives in eternity. He is, is eternal and he lives in eternity, and that can't change. Malachi 3.6, for I am the Lord, I change not. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. So God cannot change. That means he is eternal. He's always going to be eternal. But there's another thing that God is, and I'm just going to bring it in now. We'll talk about it later. But God is also omniscient. Does everybody know what omniscient means? That God, what? What's that? Yeah, he knows everything. God is omniscient. He knows everything. Now we could also add in, he's omnipresent. I mean, he's big enough and everywhere. But God's omniscient. Let me just get a few verses for that. 1 John 3.20, For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Ephesians 1, 8 through 11, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times to come, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in, he, even in him, in whom also we have obtained inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. In other words, what happens in the future? God already knows it. He's already got a plan. He's going to take care of it. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is none else. I am God. There is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. Amen. God is eternal, but God is also omniscient. So God is eternal. He's outside of time. Um, and this is how I've always pictured it. I think I've even talked about it here. If we could, God created time. So if I create something, most often um, I can, and I understand there's some things bigger, but I, if I create a pot, I can hold it in my hands. Okay? If I create a pot, I can hold it. Uh, as a matter of fact, Psalm 31, 15, David almost says this verbatim when he says, my times are in thy hand. It's, it's God, David knew that God, the events in David's life were held in God's hands. So if we could look at it, if we could look at time as this construct, follow me through everybody, construct of God created time and here it is. Here's God looking at time. Maybe it's this big, maybe, I don't care how it is, but he can hold it in his hand. God can, can see all of time all at once because he's looking at it. He's holding it in his hands. Uh, it, it's like if you've ever seen a line of ants on the ground, you know, you know they all decide they're going to go move to another spot or there's something over there and they're going to get it and bring it back. You, that ant can't see what's going to happen down here, but you can. Or my favorite illustration is the, you know, when, when you remember the old movie reels we used to have to do at school, you know, I don't know if you remember those, you had to, you had to, you know, the students had to learn how to put the thing in and wrap it through and stop it from going, you know, all that. But you could hold that up and hold it up to light, and you could see every frame of the movie all at once. 
instead of the constant. You could, you could pick each frame and you could look at it. That's, that's kind of how God looks at time. God, God is and he looks at it and he sees it all as if it's one thing. So God is at creation. He is today and he will be at the end of time. He, he can see all of it at once. Now this does not mean that God is so far off that he doesn't know what happened to you yesterday. This does not mean that God is so distant and far off that he does not not know what happened in your life on Friday or does not know what's going to happen in your life tomorrow. Again, time does not pass too slowly or too quickly for him. Okay, remember, a thousand years is... Lord is one day and one day is a thousand years. I mean, he, he always has the time he needs. God, we often look at God as just like us, but with a bigger budget. That's, but that's not God. He is Lord. He is Lord of time. He is Lord of eternity. He created time. He created it. He's created us. He set the boundaries. And clearly, according to the book of Revelation, he has even set a timetable for the end and for all things. He has set in place for things to happen at a certain point in time. But what a God, think about this, what a God who is so control, so much in control and so big and so in charge that he has already set what's going to happen at the end of time, that it matters to him what happens to us today. That we have a God who is so big and so massive that he can hold time in his hands and yet he can be with you exactly at the moment of your greatest need. In that moment. Amen. He is not so far above and beyond that he cannot be present in your most needy moments. Casting all your care upon him for he careth for you. He is not so distant and austere that he cannot be present in your most joyous moments. This is God. We serve a great and marvelous and wonderful God. A God God who is so massive that to try to describe him is almost impossible. And yet that very God who has no need of us has chosen to insert and interject himself in our lives with love and presence. And he is here as much as he is the God who has seen time. He is the God who can be with you in, I don't know, where are you at right now? God knows exactly where you're at. He is with you where you're at. I firmly believe that God, God is a God who, who weeps when we weep and joys when we joy. Do not forget God's aseity. He is self-sufficient. He does not need man, but He descended to earth and became man and died on the cross because we needed him while he is enough for himself he is also enough for us he comes to us who are unworthy and makes us worthy he come to those who did not love him and gave us his love what a great god christian do not forget his eternality i'm reminded of the song he's already in your tomorrow <laughs> He knows exactly what you have to face tomorrow. Whatever the fears, whatever the joys, whatever the, whatever the, the, the 
terrors, he already is there. And he also knows your past. I want you to think about that. God knows where you came from. God knows what has happened to you. (laughs) And I tell you something else. He's waiting for you also in heaven. And he always has enough time for you. If God was not eternal, he wouldn't do that. He couldn't do that. He has enough time. God is enough for you, and he has enough time for you. Praise his holy name. What an awesome God. What an amazing God. What a timeless God we serve. Now, I know I've not given you much. But I hope like me you can at least maybe walk out tonight and see see a God that is grand and vast and marvelous and so big that it's hard to even describe Him. And that very same God is present and is enough for each and every one of us. All the sufficiency of God is available. Wow. Tell you, if you can't walk out and get a list, a little something moving in there, something's, you're messed up. (laughs) I'm going to encourage you, go home and worship God. Go home and worship God. He doesn't need it, but we need to worship Him. God, Lord, I know 